You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Please turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Thessalonians, a small letter located between Colossians and the letters of Timothy there, about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Many of you will recognize as soon as you glance at it that this is a very important, if not even perhaps called a monumental text in the New Testament. And on a communion Sunday when I have less time than normal, it's been on my mind all week that I'm trying to deal with a large text in a short time. Nevertheless, we proceed on the topic of after death, what following upon where we were last time, and looking at the things that will unfold, particularly for the Christian, as we look at God's reward of heaven and how it will come. Listen to God's Word as I read 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And Father, we ask that we might catch the power and the great destiny for your people bound up in this revealed Scripture. Use it to our blessing and encouragement, we ask, through Jesus whom it reveals. Amen. Listen for a moment to the words of C.S. Lewis. In the book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. I wonder, he said, whether people who are in their prayers asking God to interfere directly in our world quite realize what will happen when he does. God is going to invade us, all right. And when that happens, it will be the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, you know, the play is over. And this time, his appearance will be so overwhelming that every creature will be struck either by irresistible love for him or irresistible horror. It will be too late then, Lewis said, to choose sides. That will be the time when we discover which side we have already chosen whether we know it or not. And to that we should say amen. 
Last Sunday, I spoke to you from 2 Corinthians 5 about the sure spiritual reality that every Christian will meet with immediately after death. We believe the Scripture says that those redeemed by Christ are instantly present with Him as souls perfected in righteousness. The simple phrase, and it was one you should know and take comfort from, absence from this body means presence with the Lord. We don't immediately have a resurrection body, and there's a bit of a mystery we're beginning to look at today. And yet, we are at death at home and 100% secure in the presence of God our Savior. Now, I told you that many people choose to call that first reality after death something like the intermediate state, that at least is a theologian's term. I strongly prefer the name immediate heaven. Today, we look at a fact of the Bible that goes a a step further to where the curtain rises on the last phase of our eternal expectation, what we can really call the final heaven that abides forever. Now, certainly bereavement in the face of death is a poignant human experience that every one of us knows something about. Regardless of how firm your Christian faith might be, the loss of someone very close to you brings to you a kind of profound emotional shock that many have said feels much like an amputation. The adjustments to that are often radical. They involve a deep sense of loss that does not quickly go away. Facing the death of someone we love causes us to ask naturally the question, what has happened to her? Where is he? Will I really see this person again, or is that just a figment of my own imagination or wishful thinking? Well, the Scripture says that at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the age to come broke into this present age. And our text today is one that tells us that resurrection of Jesus brings about effects that directly come upon us who believe in Him. Yes, our souls at death have the first inheritance of a resurrection hope. We are present with the Lord. However, the final gift of a resurrection body awaits the return of Christ to history as Lord and judge. And it is this epic event that we are told brings the resurrection of the dead and initiates judgment on unbelief, leads then to an amazing recreation, even of the heavens and the earth besides our mortal bodies. So first of all, I want to show you today from 1 Thessalonians 4 a great event that inaugurates heaven's final stage. It is coherent with, consistent with everything predicted in the Gospels by Christ about His coming. We don't simply have the words of Paul or other New Testament apostles. Jesus Himself, of course, spoke about a glorious second coming. In Mark 14, 62, He said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming 
on the clouds of heaven. I find that often people read 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage we've read as a main text today, out of a concern, maybe a curiosity, about how this fits into a prophecy timeline or some scheme of what are called end times events. And we're concerned about it as a curious, amazing, unique event unto itself. Today I'm not concerned about end time events. I'm not unrolling any charts for you. I'm not concerned about any labels, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Lay them all aside. I'm concerned about this great event and the one thing that it causes to be true for every believer in Christ. That is expressed well, I think, in a page just a little bit prior to this in the previous book, Colossians 3.4, which we studied a number of months ago. That great verse in Colossians 3.4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also shall appear with him in glory. That's the purpose for which we're looking at this text today. Many places in Scripture call this not a coming. It is called a coming, but it's also called a revealing in the sense that it simply makes plain and evident that which already exists. Christ ascended to the right hand of God, ruling and reigning there in splendor and greatness and power. The world doesn't see that, but this event will reveal it. And once it is revealed, there will come out of it a tremendous transformation for those who greet Christ by faith when He is so revealed. God's great saving work will be finished then, consummated. We talk about the order of salvation, God's calling of us, God's bringing us to repentance. We talk about faith and justification and sanctification, but the final stage in that order of events of salvation is always our glorification. And here it is spoken about, that in the twinkling of an eye, says 1 Corinthians, we shall be changed. The enemies of Christ will be banished. The whole cosmic situation will change. And Christ's subjects will bring honor and praise to Him and enter into their final reward at last, dwelling with Him in perfected bodies and praising Him eternally. Now, you need to notice that verse 16 of our text says that this is the supreme public event of all time. I think I've made note in past days of the fact I'm told that in in journalism, in newspaper publishing, of course, they speak tongue-in-cheek when they say this, but they speak about the largest headline that they could ever think of publishing for any event being so important that probably it would simply be a headline filling the whole front page, and it's called the Second Coming Headline, the biggest headline of the final event of history. This is a public, public, worldwide, world-shaking, cosmic event. Now, I have to say, with all due apology to believers who I think are sincere in what they They take from Scripture, but they are sincerely mistaken when they speak about a secret rapture in which Christians are removed from the earth when other people remain and wonder, where did all those people go? That is not in this text. 
we have here the loud voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. What could possibly be more noisy than that? It will shake the earth. It is an event revealed, we are told, in other places to all human eyes. Every knee will bow before it. Every tongue will confess the one who comes. Some, of course, much too late and with great reluctance. But nevertheless, in world-shaking power and majesty, Christ will be revealed, awesome in His holiness and resplendent in divine glory. But further, we must see what the purpose is for Paul writing about this event. Was First Thessalonians a book in which he said, I'm going to tell you in this book all about things of the end times? He did tell a number of those. And in fact, he continues into chapter 5 with some of those. But was that his purpose in writing the book? No. In fact, his purpose in writing this paragraph that I read was not end time curiosity. It was a problem in the Thessalonian church in the way that they were grieving. The way that they were grieving for Christians who had died. And it would seem that some of them were thinking, well, certainly when we first heard of of Christ's second coming, we thought it was almost immediate. And we thought, surely all of us who are living will see this event. But, of course, some had died. Believers had died. And they were put into confusion. And they said, well, I wonder, will my mother miss this grand event? Will my brother in Christ miss this because he has passed away? Well, Paul writes this passage primarily as a pastor. Pastoral theology is here as he wants to correct this wrong thinking and put down needless fears and say, look, Christians must not grieve as those who have no hope who are without God in the world. We grieve, yes, he would have agreed. There's Christian grief. But we grieve differently. We cry tears of hope, not tears of despair. And so I go on to our second point because there we understand why we have tears of hope and not despair. Because, I say, two groups of believers will inherit their immortal bodies together at Jesus' coming. Look at what our text says. The dead in Christ will rise, what? First. In fact, it says Christ is bringing these with him as he returns. They've been with him. There's the assurance that we had in 2 Corinthians 5. They've been in His presence. He simply brings them along. And they then will rise in their bodies first. And then we who remain alive and are left will be caught up together with the, in the clouds to meet the Lord. Now, the text of 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52 says very much the same thing, but in a little bit different words. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, we will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. What is mortal will be clothed with immortality. We need to comment just a moment on the odd term Paul uses here as he refers to these who have died in Christ before us as those who fall asleep. Sounds like an unusual term. People wonder why he would speak that way. As a matter of fact, 
The Old Testament uses the term a few times and other places in the New Testament as well. Jesus even said about Lazarus, his friend, he told the other disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And at first, you remember, they didn't know what he was saying. Well, if he sleeps, Lord, he'll be fine. No, he has died. Don't we all dress up death this way? We say he passed away. I remember when I lived in Maryland, going down there from New York State, and I, it was the more common thing there. Maybe it's a southern thing. I'm not sure. They don't say passed away. They just say he passed. Uh, that caught me up short the first few times I heard it. He passed. We use softer terms than to say he died. And it's a euphemism, of course, when we do that. That's all this is. It's a Christian name for death. Now, there be one caution, I think, that you shouldn't tell a young child, Grandpa has fallen asleep. If you do that, they're going to take you literally. Children aren't always ready for all of these euphemisms, and they're going to think, well, Grandpa's sleeping, so, well, will he wake up tomorrow? You're just going to confuse them. But the term is not inappropriate. There actually is a meaning attached to sleep that's appropriate to Christian death because, of course, sleep is temporary. If you sleep, you're going to wake up. If a Christian dies, he's going to be resurrected. And so it points to that, to the temporary nature of what death has done. And furthermore, when someone sleeps, they rest. They dwell secure. And there is also, of course, that sense in which believers rest in Christ, rest from their labors, and they will be taken up. And we're told here they will actually have the privilege, far from being at some disadvantage, they will have the privilege of being first in their resurrection body appearance. Now, we are promised a marvelous thing here, and more is going to be said. I have every intent, God willing, that we fulfill this series. There will be messages throughout January and even into February in my plan when we speak about heaven and the glories of the resurrection body. It's an amazing thing. We can't hardly begin to talk about it today. God somehow is going to reassemble the essential nature of you. Without all the weak, fallible, decaying, and sinful things about you, He's going to reassemble you. The personality certainly will be there. Somehow, there will be something visible about us that will be recognizable, perhaps in a similar way as people recognize the Lord Jesus Christ in His physical resurrection. At first, they were startled, and they didn't completely recognize Him, but then they did. They said, oh yes, it's the Lord. Somehow, we too will be recognized that way. We will have new world bodies for a new world reality. Bodies enhanced in many ways beyond anything we can think of today. And I hope to speak about that, as I've said, in the future. Philippians 3.21 says this, It is by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control that God will transform our lowly bodies to be like Christ's glorious body. Your uniqueness, your personality will not simply be brought back to life. It will be recreated. It will be new, and yet it will be continuous. There will be about it that 
something that people say, oh, yes, I know that one. What a joy to greet that one again. Or others we've never met. Moses. I've never seen Moses, but I believe I will know him. This all by God's power. You computer folks, think what a tremendous database the mind of God contains to be able to imprint and reassemble and recreate every personality this way, every personality that has ever lived, a saint of God in Christ, will be recognizable and whole and perfect in that final time. Now I tell you, 1 Thessalonians 4 does not do something that's important. It does not go into the general resurrection of unbelievers that is given us in other texts. And we will look at that event actually very soon. It's not here. But for now, be content with the assurance that those who die before us in Christ are not at any disadvantage. They, in fact, are raised first, followed by all of Christ's people living when that great day comes. Now, this is Communion Sunday. I have less time, but I want to not depart from this without some degree of practical application. And I was thrilled as I explored the text to realize what a a powerful application there really is to a day when we sit at the Lord's table. I just raised two events as you think about this final heaven begun, or two applications. First of all, remember that it is the power of God Almighty the irresistible power of God that will cause this thing to happen. Let's face it, folks. Let's be honest. I give you permission, all right? I give you permission to admit that you many times, as a Christian, have thought about the second coming and said to yourself, why, that's absolutely unreal. I just can't imagine anything like that happening. It is so far removed from everyday events and headlines in the newspaper, even the the most dramatic headlines, Pearl Harbor, 9-11 occurring in 2001, uh, the explosion of space shuttle Challenger, you think of it, Kennedy's assassination, uh, great events that shake the world to its core. You say, this is way beyond that, and I just can't even imagine it. It's like, it's practically like science fiction. How could such a revolutionary event ever happen? Well, I have to point you to this. Remember the God we're dealing with. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence. Remember that? He spoke the universe into existence. He looked and said, let there be light, and there was light. What he wills, what he commands, comes to pass. This is the God who sent his preexistent son to dwell as an embryo in the womb of a virgin woman. This is the God who raised that son from bloody death, his body brutalized in every possible way, who brought him alive and let him appear to many, many people and then raised him to heaven at his right hand. If you believe in those things, you believe in that same power of God that is going to be a shout that brings this thing to pass. It's the shout of an imperial commander 
whose voice cannot be resisted, and whose will no one can run from or disobey. Remember that. This power of God will accomplish this thing as like a tsunami wave overtaking every man and woman alive at that time and sweeping all things in history before it to this great conclusion that he has determined to bring about. But then this last thing, and I trust this is something that will warm your heart and give you great encouragement. Don't miss how our text emphasizes the togetherness of the entire church of Jesus Christ from all history in the midst of this event. Here in this scene of bodily resurrection, who will be first? Who will be in that first wave? Why Moses? Why David? Adam? Mary? Rahab? My grandparents? My godly father whose remains rest on the hill above us here? They will be first. And yet we will be joined to them as one body taking up our final inheritance. Notice verse 17. We shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Not singly. Here is the great fulfillment of God's covenant as all of His people are presented to Him together. Now, you said it this morning, whether you were conscious of what you were saying or not, when you repeated the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the communion of the saints. I believe in the koinonia fellowship of God's saints from all ages as one living body. And so, folks, this isn't just something for the Thessalonian Christians. Beloved people who have gone before, and I know that I speak today to widows and widowers. I speak to those who have lost brothers and sisters and children and sons in war and parents. It, it includes every one of us somehow, doesn't it? We've all lost beloved Christians. There's a great text that goes along with First Thessalonians 4. Where you should write this down. Maybe write it in the margin beside this text. It's Hebrews 1140. Hebrews 1140 promises this in one statement. It speaks about these who have gone before and says, only together with us will they be perfected. And then in the next sentence, the beginning of Hebrews 12, verse 1 calls those folks a great cloud of witnesses. This room is relatively full this morning, and yet there certainly are empty places in pews. I'm going to invite you to use your Presbyterian imagination. Look around you, maybe in front of you, maybe beside you, maybe off to the side, and see a seat or a few seats that are not occupied by a living, breathing Christian brother or sister. And then imagine in that seat the unseen guests who join us today when we come to the table of the Lord. The pastor who first preached salvation when you heard it. The Sunday school teacher, your mother, your father. Those precious ones who have gone before you. Imagine them 
as unseen guests right here filling all the empty seats and way beyond that in our midst around the table of the Lord. Now, am I preaching emotionalism or sentimentality? I say to you, absolutely not. I'm preaching the communion of the saints in Jesus Christ. We're separated from all those wonderful folks only temporarily. The bond of the Spirit of God will bring us together with them again, and we will enjoy with them not only perfected bodies, but everlasting oneness in the presence of God forever. That is the final heaven. That is the reality that awaits even those who have gone ahead. Jesus spoke of it once more in Matthew eleven forty three, a precious promise. He said, then, when these things occur, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Oh, family of Christ, be encouraged. Be much encouraged, for this grand reunion is certainly due to come. And it is closer to you now than anyone imagines. Praise God. Our Father, help us to come to this table with a silent cry of Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, on our lips. We admit our human minds have trouble with it. We can't figure it out. We can't quite imagine it breaking into our ordinary day. But your word that tells of all the wonders you have done says here is the final wonder that you will do. And we do anticipate it, even though it means the breakup of everything familiar. It also means the introduction of everything precious, everything perfect, and the doing away of this world of strife and these bodies of sin. But, Father, let us not be escapists. You call us to live now, to live all our days with a clear-eyed hope of this one great day so that we might live today as beacons of this truth with a true hope in us. Give it to us, we pray. Feed it, enrich it, stoke its fire that we might praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.